And now, deep thoughts. listening to the Deep Thoughts Podcast, where we explore one aspect of the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Shantz, and in this episode, I speak with Elisa Childers of Christian pop sensation Zoe Girl fame. Think Spice Girls, but less spicy. She also recently authored a best-selling book on apologetics called Another Gospel, where she autobiographically tells her own story, her own faith doubts, and how she really built back her faith. And it's striking to hear her talk about progressive Christianity. She's a great voice to unpack it for us. This was such an insightful episode. I think you're going to love it. So without further ado, let's get started. Well, hello, Elisa. Thanks for joining the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I did a little Wikipedia research on you. I don't even know if that counts as real real research, but not only do I have the author of the number one bestseller in Christian apologetics, according to Amazon, on the line, I'm also talking to one member of the Christian teen pop band Zoe Girl. Where do I begin? That's yeah. awesome. I know, it's kind of a, that, that's not a normal path, is it? <laughs> <laughs> No, it's kind of, it's cool though. Tell me like what was that like? How did you join this this teen pop band? Or do you even like being that it's referred to that way? Well, no, that's what it was. We were we were a a, a teen oriented pop music actually even more specifically aimed at teen girls, even young teen girls with the tweens was the the sort of sweet spot for Zoe girls. So it was girls that were just getting into uh, their teenage years. And so, yeah, that happened honestly more naturally in my life than writing a book happened because I, I never, all, all throughout my life, I never thought of myself as an author or I never thought I would have a blog or anything like that. So I was always uh, in music. My dad was a musician. I was just hmm. sort of raised in that world. And then, so I guess when I was about 21, um, I sent my demo to a couple of people that my dad knew from the music industry, and it just so happened that they had been wanting to put together a teen pop group that would be aimed toward young girls, and so they thought I would be perfect for that. And then so through a series of random events, we, we kind of found the other two girls, and Zoe Girl was born. So at that time period, I guess you would have been like the the Christian competition to like... Destiny's Child and 98 Degrees, and right? That was like that, that vocal group well, sound, actually, right? I don't know. Yeah, it was definitely the vocal group and the boy band thing, but you know who was really popular around that time, which I think we were kind of based on? Uh, do you remember the Spice Girls? Yes, okay, yeah. From England, yeah. So it was kind of like that was blowing up really big, and so there were actually the year we came out on Sparrow Records, I think there were like seven other girl groups that came out that same year on various other labels in the Christian industry. So it was, it was the year of the uh, Christian teen pop girl group. For oh, wow. sure. Yeah. 
That's like that was a moment in time, right? Like that was that was the sound that was what was popular. I love it. But you continue to you yeah. continue to do music. Like uh, I think I've read that you're a worship leader in your church, stuff like that. Yeah, well, actually, like right now, since COVID, actually, is the first time I'm actually not doing any music. So I spent about the last 10 years uh, as an artist in residence at a church in Ohio. So I would travel up there every four to six weeks and do all of their music for their weekend services. And then when COVID hit, uh, you know, of course, I, I stopped going up there because they weren't meeting and that just kind of seemed like the natural transition uh, to go full time into what I'm doing now, which is writing and podcasting and on YouTubing and all that stuff. So, has that? Well, we're going to start talking about your book in just a minute here. But has that creative outlet of of writing has that has the passion shifted for you, or does music still have that place in your life? Of yeah, music still has a very special place in my heart. In fact, I'll still find myself coming out to the piano. We have a piano in the living room of our house and I'll still find myself when everybody's gone, I'll, I'll kind of go over there and I'll play and sing and even write. I've been writing songs. I don't really have an outlet for any of that right now in, in the public sphere, but I'm really okay with that. It's really been something that's just kind of been sweet between me and God where I, I'm just writing songs. I'm singing songs I love to him and about him. Hmm. And so I think that um, music still has a, a very dear place in my heart. It's just there's not really a public uh, face of it right now, which is actually I'm totally okay with. Nice, nice. Well, your your book is fantastic. I, I read it in just a couple sittings, um, not because I was cramming for this interview, but just because I couldn't put it down. I really loved it, and I think it's oh. it's super timely as well. Uh, in the book, you respond to uh, progressive Christianity, but but from your own kind of quest, your own experience. So it, I think I think part of what makes it a fascinating read is it's part autobiographical, and it's part. An apologetics book, and so I, I wonder if you can maybe just start by by telling us a b- little bit about your your story and how it weaves into the scenario as you play out in the book. Yeah, well, thank you for what you said about the book. I really did pour my heart and soul into it, so it's always uh, such a joy to hear that it actually reaches somebody emotionally and then captivates them in, in a certain way. So, thank you so much for saying that. Uh, but yeah, my journey that I document in the book. Uh, really begins after Zoe Girl had finished. Uh, we had come off the road. We were all married and starting to have kids. And so I found myself uh, a new mom with a, a baby. And so my husband and I, uh, since we had come off the road, we when we were on the road, we I, I kind of lost touch with the local church, I, I hate to say, because we were always gone on Sundays and uh, never really was in the same place long enough to deeply connect with a church community. And that's my fault. I, you know, nobody to blame for that, but myself, but so we found this church, um, that we both loved. My husband and I just felt such a connection there. We loved the people. We loved the pastor's intellectual approach to the sermons that he would give. And so we attended there about eight months by the time the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller, uh, he called it like a study and discussion group. And so in this class that was happening weekly, we would be reading through a book and we would come together and discuss the book. 
And he compared this to seminary. He said, this is a four-year class, and when you come out on the other side of this class, you'll have a seminary-level education. And that sounded really exciting to me, because I had never really investigated the intellectual side of my faith. My, you know, obviously, as an artist, I was very in touch with the emotional side of my faith, and um, just feeling the presence of God and things like that. But I didn't really have any intellectual arguments to back up what I believed or why I believed it. And so that sounded really exciting to me. And it was in the context of the first class that the pastor revealed to us that he was actually an agnostic. He called himself a hopeful agnostic. And this really surprised me because he was this guy that was giving these really powerful, um, really informed, uh, scripturally packed sermons on Sunday mornings. And then here he is saying on Wednesday that he's actually agnostic. He's not sure what he believes. And so that, it kind of threw me a bit, but I just thought, well, you know, I don't want to be judgmental. Maybe he's just being really honest with this smaller group, and I'm just, I'm not going to judge it. I'll just, you know, see see what happens. But what ended up happening is over the course of the four months that I lasted in the class, um, just everything that I had ever believed about God and Jesus, and especially about the Bible, was picked apart. It was explained away, deconstructed. And essentially, many people, in fact, I, I believe all the people in the class, except for me, ended up discarding um, most of their beliefs that they'd grown up with growing up in the church. And so while we were in the class, I would kind of try to, to debate him. You know, I didn't have a lot of knowledge, but I would go home and I'd do some research and I'd try to debate him. But um, there came a point in time when it was just getting so difficult. And I remember my husband just saying, you know, we don't, I don't want to raise our, our kids here. And so we left the church hmm. and it was really then um, that when we left the church and then I was kind of isolated again, by this time I had a toddler and I was pregnant with my second child and all of the doubts that that pastor had planted began to take root in my own heart and grow. And then I went through my own process of doubt and even deconstruction. It was a, it was a really dark night of the soul. And so the book kind of starts by walking the reader through that dark time of doubt and, and where uh, I went from there. Hmm. So you talk about him being a hopeful agnostic. It's an interesting descriptor for a, a, a pastor to describe himself as agnostic atheist being kind of a more firm belief that there is no god agnostic being mm-hmm. uh, you know the existence of god you know cannot really surely be known or how who are we to know for sure anything i think that's probably more mm-hmm. of a agnostic view we're, we also we're also going to talk a bit yeah, of, I, yeah go ahead well i was just going to say there's kind of two kinds of agnostics so there's the agnostic that would say I don't know if God exists or what the truth of God is. And then kind of a more, uh, a more militant type agnosticism would say, no one can know. It That's not something that, that yeah. even can be known by hmm. humans. Yeah. Hmm. So that explains the hopeful agnostic piece is to say, maybe I don't know that, yeah. that was more his perspective. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Like he wanted it to be true, I guess, you know, he was hoping that Christianity was true, but he, he wasn't really sure. Yeah, so you mentioned also a little bit about um, that, that a deconstruction, which is a term we hear a lot about, deconstruction and reconstruction. We did an episode uh, last season about deconstruction, but I'd love to hear from your vantage point too, just kind of unpacking those terms. Uh, what do you mean when you talk about that in the context of faith? Yeah, well, deconstruction 
finds its roots in postmodern theory. So we have to kind of understand where we're at as a culture to really understand what deconstruction is all about. Deconstruction, it's not just simply people taking a look at what they believe, deciding, you know, if they've got good reason to believe it and then moving on. People use it in that way, but it really has to do with this idea that we kind of all make our own truth. And um, if there is objective truth, it can't really be known uh, objectively by people. And so what deconstruction tends to be, um, it happens on the level of even the redefinition of words. And so I don't know if this analogy works for most people, but it was what I was thinking about. See, I hadn't heard the word deconstruction when I was in that class, but I remember thinking I was sitting in a chair that was made of wood. It was a wooden chair. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I could do to this chair what they're all doing to Christianity. I could, I could literally find a way to use words to explain away the fact that this is actually a chair and actually make a case that it's not a chair by redefining words, by, by showing how molecules interact with each other, you know, I could make the word chair become meaningless. And, and that's essentially what you have with deconstruction is it's not just going through doubt. It's not just going through a time of, of making sure that what you believe is true. And if you believe something that's untrue, you get, you get rid of it. It's really more about explaining away the words we actually use to define what we believe is true about God and about Jesus and about the Bible. And so that's why a lot of times you have people go through this process of deconstruction. uh, And if there is a reconstruction, it it almost never looks like what their Christianity looked like before. And it it certainly almost never looks like what we would say um, historically Christianity has been defined by the things that have made Christianity unique in the world, the, the, the things that you go, okay, what is Christianity? It's X, Y, Z. And of course, you know, there's, there's periphery issues, there's secondary issues that Christians have always disagreed about and debated about furiously, but there's this core, you know, if you go mm-hmm. all the way back to the earliest Christians, there's this core of beliefs that define what Christianity is. And so deconstruction is literally deconstructing those words into where they don't mean anything anymore. And I think that's why we don't really see a lot of people reconstructing back to a historic Christian faith. Hmm, that's interesting. So your book is called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. So I'm, I'm asking you to define some pretty tricky and even kind of shifting terms, but um, can you define for our listeners um, like what your... The progressive Christianity, can you define that? Because that's what you're seeking to respond to in your book. What is progressive Christianity? You know, essentially a broad definition would just be the idea that Christianity itself is progressing, right? So the first Christians, the the people who walked with Jesus, who knew him, they represent Christianity in its infancy, but we're progressing beyond that now. And so what that's going to look like in today's culture is if you take perhaps the theological liberalism that first uh, came about through the, the German scholarship in the late 1800s and early 1900s, this is the, the theological conclusions that we find in a lot of the Protestant mainline denominations. But so if you take those types of uh, 
theological liberalism, the conclusions of, you know, the Bible may not be the Word of God, miracles probably didn't really happen, um, the resurrection of Jesus is probably just more of a metaphor. Uh, you take those kind of things, and then you marry that with this postmodern uh, relativistic mindset we have in our culture today, where nobody can really know truth or, or claim to know truth. If you marry those things together and just drop them right in the middle of the evangelical church, then you have progressive Christianity. So I like what you, I found it so helpful. You, you zeroed in on, um, progressive Christianity's, um, just generically the view of, of, of the Bible or reinterpretation or what that word means, Bible cross and gospel and, and, and defined sort of a common progressive Christianity's approach to those three. I mean, those are central tenets uh, of historic Mm -hmm. Christianity where over the course of centuries, there has been agreement on what we mean as Christians about those, but progressive Christianity are coming to different conclusions about those three. Would you mind just unpacking sort of both the progressive view and the historic view on the Bible, the cross and the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason I framed it in the way that I did is because progressive Christianity can be a bit tough to define because there are so many different beliefs that people might have within you know, under that umbrella. And so whereas historically Christians have been creedal, meaning we have been united around a certain set of beliefs, even if you go back to pre-New Testament creedal material that started to circulate within three to five years of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have some core beliefs that Christians have always agreed upon and basically said, okay, we agree on this, we can disagree on, on other things. Whereas in progressive Christianity, it's, it's largely not creedal. It's, it's not really about what you believe. And so it can be kind of tough to define because of that. But um, just, and, and maybe this little part of my story it will be relevant to your listeners here, is that after, you know, I went through this time of doubt and deconstruction, the Bible was the first thing I had to settle. Because all my life, before I was in this class, if anybody would have come to me with a skeptical claim against Christianity, I would have just said, well, the Bible says the opposite, so the, that settles it. And right. so it wouldn't have shaken my own faith to hear a skeptical claim. But in the class, so much time was spent um, persuading the class that the Bible was inaccurate, that the copies that we have aren't the same as what was originally written. And even what we have, and even what they wrote, wasn't really the truth about every. It has lots of mistakes and contradictions. And so it's not reliable. It's not reliable information about history. It's not reliable information about theology or about Jesus, the life of Jesus. And so when the pastor was able to kind of knock the legs out from under the Bible, that's when my deconstruction went into full gear, because I thought, well, if I don't even have the Bible Hmm. anymore to inform what I think about God, what do I have? And so the Bible was something that I I really dug into to try to discover uh, the truth about what that is. And so, you know, without belaboring the point, what I discovered over years of study is that actually we do have an accurate copy of, I spent a lot of time looking into the New Testament. Um, Even your most skeptical and atheist scholars will agree that what we have in the New Testament today is 99, at least, you know, 99, 99.5% accurate. And then that small percentage of, uh, of material that we're not sure if it goes back to the original, none of that is going to meaningfully affect a core Christian doctrine in that it would call it into question. And so, you know, some of the claims we hear are 
often, you know, rhetorical and overblown. And so, you know, and just some other arguments about the Bible, I came to the place of discovering that not only is the Bible reliable and accurate, I mean, the arguments in favor of that really just dwarf the, the question. Mm. Um, but to get back to why it's hard to define progressive Christianity, when I was reconstructing, um, after my reconstruction, I decided to take a couple of years and just read progressive books and listen to their blogs and podcasts, because um, another relevant part of the story, too, is that that class and that church that we had been in, they went on years later to identify themselves as a progressive Christian church. And so that's where the whole thing kind of tied together for me. Like, I need to understand this movement of progressive Christianity. And so uh, historically, uh, Christians, of course, have argued about all kinds of biblical interpretations, how to baptize people, all kinds of things like that. But what Christians have always agreed upon, though, is that the Bible is the Word of God. Even Jesus himself, on many occasions, affirmed the Old Testament scriptures as the Word of God. This is something that uh, Christians have always believed, uh, that it's inspired by God. That, and because it's inspired by God, it's authoritative for our lives. This is something that Christians are compelled to obey. Um, the Bible. And so in the progressive movement, however, what you have is a much different view of the Bible. Uh, and so progressive Christians are going to look at perhaps Old Testament prophets. And when, when, when somebody claims to be speaking for God in the Old Testament, the progressive Christian is going to say, well, they weren't necessarily speaking for God, but they were just trying to understand God uh, as best they could in the time and place in which they lived. And so that's why in progressive Christianity, you'll hear uh, progressive Christians even say from time to time that they might disagree with the Apostle Paul on something, or they might say, well, Paul had these prejudices and biases that sort of colored the way he did theology, and so they'll, they'll disagree with Paul. Uh, but this is, you know, I mean, it just needs to be noted that this is completely the antithesis of the way Christians have historically read the Bible, even going back to Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus quoted several Old Testament prophets and said, mm -hmm. God said this to you. This was God talking. And so um, the progressive Christian view doesn't even agree with Jesus on what the Bible is. And so um, the Bible is a, is a big one, because if you can remove any kind of meaningful definition of biblical authority that, you know, that we as Christians are compelled to obey the Bible properly interpreted, um, then, then you're kind of left just doing, you know, getting to make the rules up as you would like them to be. And so uh, I think that's why in progressive Christianity we see such an emphasis on personal conscience and on um, you know, following your own internal compass and your own moral code, because that that really has become the source of authority for for the progressive church. And we can get into the cross and the gospel as well, if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, first, like that—that's so helpful, and I agree with you. There is this sense that um, for the Christian to say, "Well, the Bible says this," I, I can see how literally the legs are cut from under you if there's this sense of those you're speaking to. Well, that the Bible's untrustworthy. Um, you you unpack yeah. even you did such a great job here, but also in the book, um, just giving your readers. Um, really helpful insights and reminders that the Bible can be trusted, the, the historicity of it, the copies of it, um, 
Peter calling the apostle Peter calling the apostle Paul's writings scripture, you know, in the first century, and and yeah. and so many of these yeah. these affirmations, and of course the early church had agreement on these, and yes, there were these late rogue letters and all that kind of stuff, but but there was real understanding in the church that of what scripture was, and and so such a great mm-hmm. handling of that. But also the cross. I mean, you go to uh, an evangelical Christian church, you will typically find uh, not Jesus hanging on the cross, but an empty cross, this belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the significance and centrality of the cross. Um, you know, 1 Corinthians one eighteen says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's scandalous. Mm-hmm. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Just from that progressive Christianity standpoint, what, what's, what happened at the cross? Or didn't happen. Yeah, and yes, and that's the question because, and this was something that was so important to me when I was in this class because uh, people were just sort of discarding the atonement as if it's no big deal. And I just remember thinking, if you take the atonement away from me, I don't have hmm. salvation. I don't have any hope because mm-hmm. uh, I know that I'm a sinner. I, I don't know about anybody else, but I know that I am. Amen. And so I've always known <laughs> yeah. that I need, you know, I need some sort of a solution for that, especially if God is perfectly holy and can't have unity with sin. Well, I've got a huge problem if somebody doesn't solve that problem. Hmm. And so uh, just to set up the progressive view, you know, historically Christians, even again, going back to pre-New Testament creedal material that began circulating within three to five years of Jesus' death and resurrection, you have that Jesus died for our sins. So there's a divine reason uh, that Jesus died on the cross, and that was in in some meaningful way to solve the sin problem that humans had. Um, there's all kinds of different language that theologians use to describe that. You can, you'll can you hear it called substitutionary atonement, uh, an added sort of element of punishment being, him taking our punishment being penal substitutionary atonement. And there certainly is tons of other language the Bible uses to describe what Jesus accomplished on the cross. There's adoption language, there's legal language. Uh, there, there's moral influence that, that Jesus is this example to follow. Certainly all of that is true, that he defeated the power of sin and death. Um, but the one view that is deeply biblical and what most Christians, and I included, would say is really central to what he accomplished on the cross is this, this atoning sacrificial death that in some way solved the sin problem of, of humankind, reconciling man to God. And so in the progressive view, however, this idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his son, uh, that turns God into a cosmic child abuser. So you'll often hear this term cosmic child abuse in the progressive church. And so this idea of uh, substitutionary atonement and certainly penal substitutionary atonement is largely rejected in the progressive church. And so what they'll say, typically Jesus accomplished on the cross, uh, is something like, they might, you might even hear them use language like he defeated the power of sin and death, um, but they reject the idea that he in any way was punished for our sin or paid the penalty for our sins. And so what that leaves you with is an unsolved sin problem. Um, but, you know, one thing we need to understand about the progressive church is there's just not a sin problem really in their minds. So they're not going to uphold the idea of original sin, that we all have this sin nature that was passed down, that our sin would separate us from God. So in the progressive mindset, there's not really a need for that problem to be solved. 
um, because they just don't see it as a problem. Uh, but for those of us who know that we're sinners, we know that, that we have a problem that needs to be solved. And, and again, just going back to Jesus, in the upper room the night before he was betrayed, Jesus quoted the Isaiah 53 prophecy, which talks about this suffering servant that would bear the iniquity of all on himself, that it would please the Lord to crush him. And he quotes that prophecy and says, this is fulfilled in me. So it's clear to me that Jesus believed that that's why he was dying on the cross. It's what the earliest Christians believed was the reason that he died on the cross. Um, But this is something that's rejected in the progressive church. Hmm. Jesus says the same thing in John 10. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. It's so significant. I mean, the atonement is, of course, right. for every sinner. Like The, the, the cross uh, solves that problem, what Jesus accomplished there for us. It's so central. So thank you for speaking to that mm. as well. I mean, you call your book Another Gospel with a question mark. And uh, and so that's sort of provocative, right? Is is we have these Christians, mm-hmm. that, you know, the term is progressive Christians or progressive Christianity. That Christianity is progressing, but that's the crux of the matter. Is it another gospel entirely? It reminds me of Galatians mm-hmm. one, where where the Apostle Paul. In his introduction to the Galatians, so pretty tough letter to receive from from Paul the Apostle, mm-hmm. where he says in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is an ancient problem, but it's a, it's a problem that exists today and in different forms. And I think that's ultimately why your book is so helpful, is you're identifying uh, a branch of the church today that essentially is proclaiming a different gospel. Just at the heart of this gospel mm-hmm. matter, can you just unpack that um, kind of progressive yeah. and historic view? Yeah, I wanted to title the book that way because I think a lot of Christians have a misconception. When they hear the term progressive Christian or progressive Christianity, they might not really understand what the definition is. They might just think, oh, this is just a group of Christians that might be more progressive politically, or maybe they're just changing their mind on a couple of social issues, or maybe they're just more uh, mission-minded than maybe the the evangelical church has been. But I wanted to really make the point in the book that what Christians really need to understand is that is not what progressive Christianity is. It's not just some Christians who are changing their mind on politics or some social issues. This is a group of Christians that are denying core aspects of the historic Christian gospel and reframing the gospel and creating an entirely different gospel than Christians have historically believed. And that's that's a really important thing for people to understand. And this gospel is going to give you a different God. It's going to give you a different Jesus. And like we just talked about with the view of the cross, it's not a Jesus who can save you from your sins. And mm-hmm. so it's it's really of utmost importance to, to talk about the difference between the progressive gospel and, uh, and I use the word historic because I'm not really speaking for any kind of denomination or even any group. I'm not even speaking for evangelicals. Uh, I certainly think when evangelicalism first came about, its goal was to protect historic Christianity and historic beliefs. But, you know, that may change. Who knows? Uh, I, I wanted to go back to the earliest Christians, how Jesus and the apostles defined what it was this this good news? What is this good news, this gospel message that we were to preach to the whole world? And in the progressive uh, paradigm, you don't have the core elements in place. And so 
you know, the core Christian gospel historically has been this this good news of salvation, of reconciliation to God. It has to do with sin and redemption. Of course, it's going to overarch the narrative acts of God's redemptive acts in history from creation to the fall to Jesus' redemption to final restoration and this final judgment day where people will be separated into two groups, those who have received this gift of salvation, who will be with God uh, forever, uh, quarantined away from sin and evil forever, and then those who have rejected that gift will be in a place called hell forever, away from from God and His goodness and His love. And so if we just kind of view that as the historic Christian gospel in the progressive view, um, that that's not even close to what they would say the gospel is. In fact, some progressive authors like Brian McLaren would say what I just told you, and he'll, he'll say that's a pagan idea. That all comes from Greek philosophy, from kind of cobbled together from Plato and Aristotle. That's not the gospel that Jesus preached. And so according to McLaren, the uh, the the gospel is what he calls the gospel of the kingdom, because that's kind of the language Jesus would use. But when he lays out what he says Jesus' gospel is, it has to do with, uh, you know, environmentalism and green energy and socioeconomic reform and things like that. And so McLaren is saying the gospel is not about really sin and redemption, but it's about uh, being reconciled with God and people in the here and the now. And so progressive Christianity is very here and now, this life focused. It's not afterlife focused as the historic Christian gospel has always been. Now, certainly, historically, Christians have done amazing good works in the world because the Bible tells us that our salvation will bear fruit. Mm -hmm. And I think we have great evidence of that throughout history. But in the progressive paradigm, it's really more about these good works. So it becomes a works-based gospel that's largely going to be informed by whatever causes are really popular in culture. So you're going to find the progressive church following culture on whatever the big cause is right now. So that's why the progressive church is so militant in its advocacy for the affirmation of, um, say, gay marriage and same-sex relationships, because that's where culture's at right now. And so it becomes a very works-based gospel, which is the exact opposite of the gospel that Christianity has historically preached. It's this free gift of salvation. You can't earn it. You can't do enough works to uh, work your way into heaven. And so you find that you have an entirely different gospel, like I said, that's going to give you a different God and a different Jesus. And that's a scary place to be in. Hmm. Wow. Um, so as we start to wrap up this conversation, I've just got a two-parter, two-part question for you. Let me try and set this up uh, right. Um, I want us to, to be sympathetic to... Um, to progressive Christians for for a moment, uh, you have a portion of your book where you do this. Um, this idea that there's this tension in these folks um, as they probably experiential, or some of them, um, some of them more kind of cognitive uh, belief issues, but but maybe stem mm-hmm. sometimes from from looking in and seeing. Some of the bad, which certainly exists in evangelicalism or in, or in anyone's particular local church, yeah. maybe there was a bad experience or a life experience that was hard. I want I, I want to maybe hear you. Part one would be more of kind of a sympathetic. Um, what do you resonate with in terms of their desire to address some of these wrongs? 
And then the second part of the question would be mm-hmm. from your perspective, what's the better way forward than where, where they've landed? Did, like, does that make sense? Yeah, it's a great question because you're right. Progressive Christians aren't being drawn to progressive Christianity because they just find the message so compelling very often. Very often they're reacting against some kind of a messy situation they had in the church they grew up in. Many people that are drawn to progressive Christianity have been through legitimate spiritual abuse in their churches. Of course, we've seen all the scandals come out. We, you know, the church needs to clean house. We need to deal with that stuff. And so you can understand why it would be so appealing to find a group of people that's just going to embrace you. They're not going to require anything of you. It feels very non-judgmental. It feels very loving, mm-hmm. especially when you've had this horrible experience in the church you grew up in. Of course, in the you know the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, there was so much legalism in the evangelical church. People who grew up in these really hyper-fundamentalist environments where they just were completely suffocated by pastors and leaders who overshot scripture by miles on things. And then they, you know, of course they meet this group of people again, where it just feels so much more open and inviting. Uh, I can understand that. I certainly can. Even growing up in a Christian bubble, you know, I've talked with progressive Christians who grew up in church situations in which they were told that their small little sect of Christianity was the only right one. It was the only one that really got things right. And, you know, even some were told that other denominations were going to go to hell. And, you know, some didn't take it quite that far. But you can certainly understand the impetus to reject all of those things that are rightly wrong. Um, you know, rightly reject those things that are wrong. And But the problem, though, is that in progressive Christianity, they're not going to give you the real cure. Because, you know, when, when the emergent church and progressive Christianity first kind of came on the scene, they brought in some legitimate critiques of evangelical culture. These were things I had even noticed and mm-hmm. seen. Mm-hmm. In fact, in my book, I call them rocks in my shoes. And I think that's what made me so... Um, attracted to this particular church that my husband and I found each other in. What I didn't know at the time, though, was that progressive Christians were going to be throwing out the gospel. I I thought, of course, the gospel is the answer. The real gospel is the answer to all of this stuff. Um, Repentance, true repentance. Um, But but they threw the gospel out, like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and that's the danger of it. But certainly I can understand why people are attracted to it. Well, I thank you so much for your time. I highly recommend Elisa's new book, Another Gospel. I invite you to check out her writing at elisachilders.com and check out the Elisa Childers podcast. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us and for equipping the church with timely reminders of the historic truthfulness of Christianity. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Well, as you can tell from that interview, I commend Elisa's book, Another Gospel, to you. It's really, really helpful for our moment, and I think you will really appreciate reading it. You know, Deep Thoughts is still pretty new to the podcast scene, so a couple ways that you can help us get the word out is to go and give us an honest five-star review and leave a comment about how deep the podcast is. And we'd also really appreciate it if you'd handpick an episode for someone in your life that you think would be helped by it and send it on their way. Next week, I talk to national treasure, Pat Zabel, about liturgy. And it is good. Talk to you then. Wow.
Deep. Thank you. You're a great interviewer. It's always such a, a joy to do an interview with such a, a thoughtful interviewer with just great questions and <laughs> great framing. You know, it's like you oh, can good. ask similar questions, but when you frame them so nicely, it's, it's you know, it's, yeah, you did a great job. So. Oh, thanks. Well, I, I can uh, see why your podcasts are feeding traction. There you go. Well, thank you. <laughs>